Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanko and Scott Park. Hi, this is Bob Bazanko from the Green and Red podcast. Scott Park and co-host will join us in a few minutes. But uh, today I'm super excited to talk to somebody who has been important in the worlds of literature and and actually uh, activism with regard to the Middle East for a long time. And that's the uh, journalist and author and broadcaster, uh, Charles Glass. Uh, Charlie has written about the Middle East for well over, what, 40 years now. Uh, You're a fellow at the New America's International Security Program. Uh, A lot of books on the Middle East, including Tribes with Flags, Money for Old Rope, The Tribes Triumphant, The Northern Front, and a book I've used in my class, often Syria Burning, which came out in 2016. And then most recently, a book we'll talk about at the end, which is uh, not about the Middle East, but uh, Soldiers Don't Go Mad, which has got really good uh, reviews. Um, And I could go uh, on and on. Your career began in the 70s at ABC News, Bureau Chief, uh, an adventure in in Lebanon and so forth. So uh, welcome to Green and Red Podcast, Charles Glass. Thanks, Bob. Uh, Let's get started. Um, Something a little off that path, but uh, recently you had an article in The Nation uh, about a visit with Julian Assange, which... um, sadly, I think, on the left isn't getting anywhere near the attention it should get. And actually, liberals probably want to see the guy, you know, put in jail for life uh, anyway. So it's even though it's a free speech issue compared to something like Daniel Berry and all those years ago, it's not getting, I think, the kind of attention and support. And so, um, first of all, how's Assange doing? What did you see when you when you saw him recently? And then we can talk a little bit about what's happening with him. Well, he's maintained somewhat his morale and his hope that he'll be free one day, but his health is not good. Mm. He's confined to a small cell for 23 hours a day. Uh, and his one hour out for exercise is still indoors. So he hasn't seen the sun in five years. He's very pale, he's weak, he's undernourished. The budget for feeding prisoners at the Belmarsh Maximum Security Prison is two pounds per day, which is about $2.25 per day three meals a day. Um, He has no one to talk to. He's allowed books, but not all the books he would like to have. Uh, He had a radio, but it's broken at the moment and they're not fixing it. Uh, He has no other communication with the outside world except for weekly visits from either his wife and two sons or his lawyers, or very, very occasionally someone like me, an old friend who wants to come and see him. So we're allowed to see him for an hour and a bit, you know, room with other prisoners being visited by their friends and family under very strict surveillance. It's a, it's a very severe regime, particularly for someone who has not been convicted of any crime. Mm-hmm. You've noted, uh, you mentioned he was kind of getting harassed and the people who visited him, like you had a computer, a laptop stolen, right? So what, what kind of pressures are they putting on people outside of, of the, in this inner circle? Well, mo- many of us have been sur- under surveillance. Um, I'm part of a lawsuit with another journalist and two lawyers whose telephones were taken by the uh, Ecuadorian embassy security staff and, ter- and all of our information from our phones turned over to the CIA. Uh, 
this is all public knowledge. Yeah. And there's a lawsuit going on in New York now suing Mike Pompeo and others for violating our right to privacy and also, in the lawyer's case, um, violating the privileged communication between a client and his lawyers, which is completely illegal, yeah. but they, they seem to be getting away with it. Um, Stefania Maurizzi, who's written widely on, on Julian Assange and who was one of the media partners of WikiLeaks, she had her computer stolen. Um, she's been harassed by people unknown. Uh, she's been threatened. Um, she's had a very, very tough time, and she's not the only one. I think, um, you know, in, in the U.S. especially, so much of the Assange story revolved around the, the uh, allegations in Sweden. Uh, but there's so much more to it. Do you want to just kind of briefly, because I think a lot of people still don't really know that much about this. But I just kind of talk a little bit about why, why is he in Belmarsh right now? What has he done? Well, he hasn't done anything as far right. as I'm concerned. He hasn't committed any crime yeah. at all. Of course. He's but... there because the United States is demanding his extradition to stand trial on uh, 17 counts under the Espionage Act of 1917, um, which means that he released information that the government did not want made public. For example, the, the famous video of an Apache helicopter shooting down civilians in the streets of Baghdad, including two Reuters journalists, which the Pentagon said was, was firing on terrorists. But the, the, their own video proved, and this was released by WikiLeaks, thanks to, yeah. thanks to Chelsea Manning and Julian Assange, uh, so the public could see clearly that the Pentagon had lied. Uh, and, then, and then Manning provided many more documents, uh, U.S. Doc, State Department documents, CIA documents, and so forth, showing that the United States knowingly was committing war crimes in Iraq and Afghanistan. WikiLeaks had a previous history where they exposed corruption in Kenya, uh, the evil doings of the Indonesian regime. It's not as if the, it had just gone after the United States. Uh, Assange and his colleagues set up WikiLeaks originally for whistleblowers to have a safe place, a safe deposit box to send documents of wrongdoing in their institutions, which could be private or public institutions. And that it was so secure, no one could know who the whistleblower was, including WikiLeaks itself. Then WikiLeaks had to vet the documents and find out if they were legitimate and then would release them. In the case of the State Department and US documents, uh, WikiLeaks cooperated with the New York Times, uh, with The Guardian in London, with El País in Spain, and with Le Monde in Paris. Uh, and, and redacted names of people who, whose lives might have been endangered if their names had been made public as part of the release. Then the documents were released. When the Obama administration was considering whether or not to prosecute Assange, Obama himself, and he, remember he was once a constitutional lawyer, decided that if he prosecuted Assange, he would have to prosecute the New York Times and the Washington Post as well because they were party to this release of documents, they published them, and, and in, if, if you're going to be consistent, you'd have to prosecute them as well. Well, when Trump became president, he decided that was out the window, and he just went after Assange himself. And when the Biden, when Biden came in, he could have gone along with his, with his the man who he had served for eight years as vice president, uh, Barack Obama, and not prosecuted Assange and withdrew and withdrawn the extradition request from the UK. And he didn't. He decided to proceed with prosecution and is, is still vigorously pushing for Assange's return to the United States, where he would spend 175 years in prison if convicted. 
Now, the court where he's going to be tried in Virginia, which is known as the Espionage Court or the National Security Court, of all the people who have ever been put on trial there, not one has ever been acquitted. What's the, the current status? I know last year there was a, a, a decision in London, which kind of seemed at first favorable, but really wasn't. So what's the, the actual status of where he is right now in terms of the decision the by, by justice, well, by magistrate Vanessa Barrister was that the U.S. case was right on all points of law and that he could be extradited. However, his health was such that if he were extradited to the United States, he was a very, very likely to be a suicide risk. And there had been a precedent the year before of a young man, a hacker, uh, who was autistic. And he had hacked things in the United States. And, and the British court decided that actually he, his health would be so injured by the rigors of the American prison system that they wouldn't stay. So on that basis, she, no. she delayed the extradition because she also let, let, left it open for the British government and the American government to appeal her decision and try to get him uh, sent to the States despite these health issues. Uh, his case comes up for final appeal next month in February uh, in, in the High Court in, in Britain. And that's his last appeal in Britain. After that, uh, he can appeal to the European Court of Human Rights which may or may not decide in his favor. But even if it does decide in his favor, the British government has a tendency to ignore the European Court of Human Rights, particularly this government, because it doesn't like it at all. Yeah, well, we're seeing that right now in, in Gaza, right, where you can just ignore you know, decisions in international law that you don't like. Um, Scott, did you want to add anything to Yeah, I, I was actually kind of had, hi, nice to meet you. Um, uh, I was kind of curious about the the dangerous precedent being set by targeting the targeting of Julian Assange and, and other journalists for like prosecution or as we see in Gaza Gaza uh, for you know assassination and et cetera. Well, there was talk um, at the CIA by Pompeo and others of assassinating Assange when he was still uh, a refugee in the Ecuadorian embassy in London. There was also talk of kidnapping him. Uh, various members of the Obama and Trump administration suggested that he should be taken out, to, to coin the phrase that uh, Hillary Clinton used. Um, but it was never acted on. Uh, Congress got wind of it and basically embarrassed the government to with withdrawing these discussions and ending these discussions. Uh, the case Gaza is a very different situation. Um, journalists are being killed in Gaza by the Israeli occupiers um, because they're there. That's all just because they're there. They're, I mean, 20, over 22,000 Palestinians have been killed, several hundred of whom are journalists. And it doesn't, I don't, I don't know, except in some cases they have targeted journalists, but for the most part, they're just killing all the civilians, including journalists, including doctors, including women and children, including anyone who happens to live there. Before we segue to that, just uh, with regard to Assange, what's the kind of network of solidarity and support for him like? I, I know I've read articles by you and other journalists, especially supporting him, but um, does he have any kind of uh, uh, extra you know, kind of governmental support, NGO support, anything like that? Uh, what what are kind of the, out, what's the, the outlook going forward? The United Nations Rapporteur on Human Rights and Against Torture, um, Niels Meltzer, who originally didn't have much sympathy for Assange, but finally went to see him at Belmarsh and then studied the case very closely and wrote a book about 
is called what's being done to Julian, torture in every sense of the word. Yeah. And, and it's illegal and it should not be done to him that he should be released. And he has been leading the charge at the UN in support of Julian Assange. The Italian journalist Stefania Maurizzi, the late Australian journalist John Pilger, and, and a few others have been very, very active uh, in, in Julian's defense. Uh, the Committee to Prevent Journalists has not been very good about it. Amnesty has been good about it. Um, Reporters Without Borders have been excellent in supporting his case. The Guardian, which published many of his documents and won awards on the basis of his documents, has been very wishy-washy about it. They finally, along with the New York Times and others, said that he should not be extradited because of the threat it would mean to all journalists. But they have not they have not campaigned on his behalf. They've simply finally come out on the right side, but they've not made it an important issue. And there aren't many articles or network television reports about the Julian case, Julian's case as it goes for as it proceeds through the courts. How do you how do you think this is like like Wiki, WikiLeaks is uh, WikiLeaks just ha- hasn't been publishing like they were uh, since the Assange case happened, and I'm and I'm kind of curious about how this prosecution is going to stifle whistleblowers and you know more edgy investigative journalism and and the like. It already has. Um, we should when the Ukraine war began, we should have been reading documents from Russia. We should have been reading U.S. State Department uh, documents about what the U.S. was doing in terms of aiding Ukraine. We should have been reading about torture in Russia. We should have been reading about war crimes, whistleblowers from Russia, Ukraine, elsewhere should have been sending things to WikiLeaks, but they weren't because they can't. Uh, Julian kept WikiLeaks going during all those years, the seven years he was in the Ecuadorian embassy because he had internet access and people were still using the WikiLeaks safe box. And he released many of the most important documents while he was still in the Ecuadorian embassy. But since he was taken out, uh, when Ecuador withdrew its protection and the British took him to Belmarsh prison, uh, WikiLeaks is basically shut down. And so a lot of things that we should know now about what's going on in Gaza, what's going on in Sudan, what's going on in Ukraine, we don't know because a lot of whistleblowers don't trust the newspapers. Many of the newspapers have a record of when push comes to shove, they turn over the, the whistleblower to the authorities. I mean, uh, a woman called Sarah Tisdall was turned over by the Guardian to the British and she went to prison. So you don't you don't want to trust a newspaper that's, that will not, in, in, the end reality winner here with uh, maintain your maintain your confidentiality um anything else we were gonna i was thinking we could segue a little bit to the middle east because that's an area you've known for for so long for decades um and we've done shows on it you know there's a a ton of media on it they kind of tend to go over the the same stuff so i want to kind of see if we could do something a little (laughs) take a different approach um given how long you've been there uh, you know, how well you know the, the region. Um, I guess the first thought I have is, are you surprised by the, the kind of intensity, the ferocity of, of what Israel's doing in uh, Gaza over the last three months? I'm appalled, yeah. but not necessarily surprised. Yeah. I mean, it is a repeat of 1948. Right. Read the history of uh, how the country was ethnically cleansed in 48. It's repeating itself now. In 1949, um, when the 19, when the what, what Israel called its war of independence was finally over, they had expelled three quarters of the Palestinian population to neighboring countries, and then proceeded to demolish demolish 
385 Palestinian villages so that they could never, those people could never come back. Now, when they've gone into Northern Gaza, they followed up their operations with bulldozers knocking down every building in sight because they don't want them to come back. And the, and the cabinet ministers are speaking openly that they should all go to Sinai and get a tents in Sinai and that other countries should then take them in for humanitarian reasons. Um, it's, 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 it's not new for the policy of the Israeli state and its predecessors before statehood to want to get rid of the indigenous population so that it could bring in a settler population. It's, it's not, I mean, it's not a surprise, even, even Zionist historians like Benny Morris have written openly that this, this was the sine qua non of the existence of the state. But they're going to have what Netanyahu now talks about is total security control, everything west of the Jordan River, which is what Netanyahu's recent speech talked about. It means getting rid of the population. This is just kind of speculative, but um, what do you think the the Palestinian uh, motive for kind of beginning the latest rounds? I, I obviously didn't begin the crisis, the the hostilities at all, but from October seventh on, do you think that the the idea there was to kind of spur on a larger resistance, or it was just kind of? I, I, I don't. I'm, I'm not. I'm not in touch with Hamas. So I can't really read their minds. I don't know. I do know that an attack of some kind was inevitable because of the frustration of living under siege for all these years with, with barely enough to eat, restricted electricity and water supplies, um, no no ability for people to travel in or out. Uh, I mean, it's a whole, horrible, horrible life. You can't treat people like that forever and expect them to take it. I, I don't, I, I, I'm, I mean, I was surprised that they were so effective in breaking out and breaking through the Israeli security system, which is very expensive. And uses technology that they export around the world, saying you know, we are the finest crowd control people on earth, and buy our stuff. I don't think anybody's going to buy their stuff anymore because it didn't work. Well, what do you think about the kind of the the the? It seems like an expansion of the war, the Yemen, Iran, uh, you know, uh, Hezbollah. Um, is that you know kind of you know do you, do you see that happening where this is going to kind of expand into something even bigger? It's unpredictable. If, if it gets out of hand, of course, but it, it, within at the moment, uh, Hezbollah and Israel in the north, in the north of Israel, the south of Lebanon, uh, seem to be honoring the rules of engagement and not escalating, but simply showing the other side that they're there and, and so sh shelling and shooting back and forth every day, leaving the, the border areas depopulated in the meantime. Uh, in terms of the Houthis in Yemen, they've, they've raised the stakes a great deal by attacking uh, international shipping. Um, and then Iran attacking uh, U.S. bases in, in Syria and Iraq also is raising, raising the temperature. But it all seems to be within acceptable limits without it going all out war. But, you know, you, you, these things are unpredictable. Somebody could make a mistake and it could, could get out of hand and we could have regional conflagration. At the moment, we have, it's something completely unrelated, which is uh, Baluchistan independence in uh, in Iran and Pakistan. Baluchistan is in both countries. Uh, and the Iranians and the Pakistanis are now firing into each other's countries and threatening war with each other, where a few weeks ago they were on very good terms. Uh, any, anything can happen now. And, it's, and I, don't, I, would, I would say that the great power in the United States, I mean, is not managing this very well. I think that that last point is important because, um, you know, not not just from a, the, the standpoint of the war, but just even politics in the United States. You keep thinking, like, what the hell is Biden doing? Right. He's destroying his election chances, which aren't great to begin with. 
um, the whole world is condemned, not the whole world, but most of the world is condemning this. Um, is there a, a larger, you know, kind of, do you see anything larger here? You know, the, the U.S. role in the region as well as anybody. And um, I can't quite figure out why, you know, at this particular point, 2024, we're seeing this. Well, the U.S. has consistently supported Israel in anything it does, including things that the U.S. publicly says it disapproves. It still pays for it, still supplies the weapons. I think we have to look at American actions more than American words. Yeah. What I was going to ask about is is the, the, the role of what's going on in Israeli politics. Um, and, I, and I know that we've had a, a, a right-wing shift within Israeli politics the last few years, decades maybe, uh, but we're also seeing, like, there was a there was a peace march of Israelis yesterday in, uh, I think, Jerusalem with like 2,000 people, and I'm, and I'm kind of curious about, you know, what Netanyahu's, you know, this is basically he's staking his, like, career and reputation and probably, like, place in history on this, and I'm I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are about what's going on with internal Israeli politics. Netanyahu is prolonging the war because he knows when it's over, he's out of office and he's going to prison. He's been he's been trying to rig the Supreme Court. He's been trying to change the laws to keep himself. He's a bit like Silvio Berlusconi was in Italy when he became prime minister in Italy in order to stay out of prison. He's he's prolonging this in order not to serve time. And he's, he, will, he's, he announced yesterday that he was going to keep this going for months and months. There are huge demands, not, not just from the peace group, because the peace group is, is isolated and, and irrelevant, but from, from the right wing who want to get rid of it because they, don't, they, they think he, he blew it on October the 7th. He ignored all the signs. Um, and then his, his war, while being very destructive, is not being very successful. Hamas is still there. It's still fighting. And people are dying for nothing. So uh, he's very unpopular, even on the right. But while the war is going on, they feel, at least his cabinet feels, they can't get rid of him because the, the government will fall apart. It'd be very hard for anybody now to put, put together a, a coherent cabinet. You are listening to the Silky Smooth Sounds of the Green and Red podcast. Please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, please hit that subscribe button. And if you're listening to us on your favorite audio platform, please give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And if you really like what you're hearing, please go to our Patreon, patreon.com backslash greenredpodcast and become a patron or make a one-time donation by going to our website at greenredpodcast.org and hitting that support button. We were talking about Assange a minute ago. I want to kind of go back to the idea of journalists and reporters because the coverage coming out of the West, I, I would assume, you know, based on what I've seen in, in, from UK papers, it's similar to the US and Canada, is has been pretty one-sided, right? Essentially, in many ways, just carrying IDF propaganda. Uh, you know, during the IG uh, International Court of Justice hearings in the US, they they didn't show the South Africa and Ireland, you know, uh, arguing against Israel, but then they showed pretty much all of the Israeli response to it. Um, you know, and we kind of expect stuff from the U.S. media, but is it is the kind of level of the way they've accepted and swallowed propaganda a bit surprising? And is there kind of some way around this? Uh, I know one thing. Well, that's, it, depends, it depends. It depends on which media outlet you're referring to. Well, I'm Have talking about seen, like in the U.S. Uh, the well, the U.S. I'm not in the U.S. I, I yeah, can't yeah, 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 yeah. But I, I I listen to the BBC daily. Yeah, and their reporting has been excellent. It's been it has fair. been. It hasn't okay. been. 
pro-Palestinian or pro-Israeli. It's been very, very fair. Okay. Correspondents like uh, Jeremy Bowen, Paul Adams, Lise Doucette, uh, who have who've been covering it as they would any war in the world, not taking sides. And uh, they've been in first rate. El País in Madrid, which yeah. has an English edition online, which is worth reading because it's the perfect antidote to the New York Times, which is, you know, New York Times way to the right of the Israeli Daily Haaretz, which yeah, yeah. Another, has had some good coverage, unlike its American equivalents. Uh, so it's not that the whole Western world has, has been swallowing Israeli mind. The Irish press, the Irish Times have been very good as well, yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, but the U.S. usually falls into line with, with Israeli policies and excuses them. I, I know my own experiences at ABC trying to get pieces on the air that showed Israel what Israel was actually doing, the harm it was causing people, particularly in South Lebanon, where I was covering. Uh, those people often didn't get on the air because they didn't. They didn't tell the story that they wanted told, even though they were true and everybody knew they were true. But that didn't matter. Is in European discourse, are they also kind of throwing out these kind of allegations of anti-Semitism to people they don't agree with? Are you seeing that as well? Oh, sure. Well, so that's, happen that's happening in Britain and France, particularly. Yeah. Um, and it, you know, it's, it can be very effective. I think it's wrong. I, I mean, I, I think that you can be very pro-Semitic, philo-Semitic, um, but not approve of what Israel is doing to the people in Gaza. It's 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 irrelevant. I mean, if, let's just say that this wasn't the Jewish state doing this. Let's say it was the Turks doing it. We would have no problem saying the Turks have killed 25,000 people in the last two months and the U.S. is supplying them. And we, we would say there's something wrong about that. And nobody would then come and say, you're just anti-Turkish. Because I wouldn't be just anti-Turkish. I'm anti-mass murder. And the people who have kind of spoken, I mean, they are anti-Semites. We all know that, that, and that's a huge problem. But most of the people who are objecting to annihilation of Gazans and West Bankers are not doing it because they don't like Jews. It's because they don't like murder. They don't like ethnic cleansing. They don't want to see these people suffer. And that's, it has nothing to do with religion or one's racial views. Those things are completely irrelevant. You just take the actions and judge them on their own merit, with whoever does them. Do you sense there'll be any kind of increased support from other Arab states? I know many of them have kind of signed on to the uh, South African allegations, but you know, in terms of like actually reaching out and helping Palestinians, not so much. Um, do you think the that's Arab kind of a... been, the Arab states have been wholly supine throughout this? Uh, they've made rhetorical. Yeah. gesture. But that's to humor their own populations, yeah. who feel very strongly in favor of the Palestinians. So they make statements to appease the popular opinion. Uh, not that they have to worry too much about popular opinion, because none of them are elected. But if you compare this to the October War of 1973, when Egypt and Syria right. uh, launched the war to get back the territories that Israel had occupied in 1967, the Arab oil states had an embargo. They announced a total oil embargo on the United States and the countries that were helping Israel. And that had an impact. Okay, but I don't see Saudi Arabia and the UAE and Kuwait getting together for an oil embargo now for, for the people in Gaza. The people in Gaza aren't getting help from anyone. They're just, they're just being ignored. Now, the Egyptians aren't saying anything, aren't doing anything. The uh, Saudis, the Kuwaitis, the Emiratis are not doing anything. 
so I don't, I don't, I don't think the Palestinians are naive enough to look to the Arab states for any kind of meaningful help. Yeah, it almost seems like they're using this as an opportunity to, you know, target Iran. Like continue, like there's been this, you know, conflict between Iran and the Saudi Arabia, the, some of the oil states. And it seems if if anything, they're seizing on this, you know, hoping that this moment will lead to like some weakening of Iran through, you know, weakening Hezbollah or Syria or whatever. Um, that may my... well be, but, but, but remember, Iran and Saudi finally established diplomatic relations through Chinese mediation, and things were improving on that front. Uh, I, I think the Saudis still would like to have that better relationship with Iran so that they won't have to continue their stupid war in Yemen, for example. Yeah. Uh, right. Saudi is, in terms of Hezbollah, Saudi doesn't care about that. You know, the, I think the European Parliament this, this week announced that uh, it called for a ceasefire voted the, the support of ceasefire. Um, but then in the US, uh, just in the in the Senate in the last day or two, they tried to uh, pass some resolution or pass a law to uh, say that the US couldn't sell weapons to, it had to enforce its law that couldn't sell weapons that were committing human rights violations and only like 11 senators uh, voted for it, like kind of either on the like kind of left progressive side with with Rand Paul, who's like a right wing libertarian, and I'm and I'm I'm kind of curious about this because I, I believe that the Macron has also called for a ceasefire uh, a, a while back, and so I'm kind of curious if you see this sort of like, uh, you know, the, if there's this split going on between like what the European with the Europeans and the U S. Like the U S. is definitely like a right wing country with a right wing political, you know, system, but like, how do you see the what the European more and more Europeans sort of uh, nation states calling for a ceasefire? How how is that going to have any effect? Well, first of all, the only person who can call for a ceasefire is is Netanyahu himself, yeah. and he has to be forced to by the only country that gives him the wherewithal to continue the the killing, which is the United States. And unfortunately, I'm I'm, I'm a little bit surprised that even eleven senators voted to restrict arms sales to Israel. Probably very brave of them. Some of them may lose their seats as a result. That the the United States is going to go on supporting it, and it doesn't matter what the Europeans say; it's very irrelevant. I mean, some Europeans, like the, the British, uh, are one hundred percent behind the United States and Israel in this. They have no criticisms whatsoever. France is sitting on the fence. Italy has got a right wing government. Hungary has a very right wing government. Um, they're they're they have no problem with killing Arabs. So I I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't put much hope in Europe. When you when you think about that, and then you kind of wonder how this thing is going to play out, how it's going to end. I mean, Netanyahu has vowed to just continue, pretty much for his, his doing whatever he wants to do as long as he wants to do it. You don't have this, you know, great uh, outside support. You don't have support from the Arab states. I mean, um, how did how do you break this? How did I mean? Other than this, like this, and you know, in the U.S., there's you know, fairly significant pressure on Biden, more so than I've seen in a long time. You know, the other day with regard to the Houthis, somebody asked him, you know, are, are the strikes working? And he said, no. Are you going to stop? No. So they're essentially doubling down on a lot of stuff that's really not, you know, setting aside from the, the horrible atrocities and, and war crimes. It's not working either. So, I mean, kind of I'm asking you to be a seer in a way, but like, where does this go? I, I, I'm just kind of worried and, and curious that, that there's no really decent outcome at this point. Well, you're in the States. I'm not. You're, yeah. you're in a position to observe that. I, I can only see it from afar. 
Yeah. I have a better idea. I mean, I just spent a few months in Beirut. I have a better idea what's going on in the Middle East or here in, in Europe. But I I think if, if people organize the United States in a meaningful way with an anti-war movement, that might move enough legislators to call for a change because they'd be afraid of losing their seats. But I, I don't see anyone galvanizing the public uh, in that way. I, mean, I think Biden's willing to go down and lose it, uh, over Gaza. He's, you know, certainly that's kind of kind of what he's showing us this far. Uh, so it's it's just a, a you know, kind of well, bizarre. Maybe, his, maybe his calculation is that if he crosses uh, Netanyahu, that he'll definitely lose. Could be, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an ugly situation. And then, you know, with with Trump lurking, it it makes it even kind of more complex and you know, kind of kind of scary. I don't, I don't think Trump would have done anything different from what Biden is doing. No, probably not. No, I mean the rhetoric clearly is different. Although he wanted uh, by uh, Netanyahu impeached, you know, so Trump did. No, so. He, he's 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 a fickle ally. <laughs> he once he once said he loved WikiLeaks, and then he prosecuted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, WikiLeaks is actually, I think, kind of has some popularity on the right in the United States, I guess, because of the Russia thing and stuff like that. I, I don't really know, but it's kind of kind of odd. Um, last thing in the Middle East, and we'll talk a little bit about your book. You just you mentioned you've just been in, in Lebanon, which is which is interesting. I mean, Lebanon has been in, you know, had a lot of stuff going on for a, a few years now. The banking system has kind of collapsed. Um, what's what, what did you see there? What's the situation there? Because we don't really talk about it very much. Well, it's on its knees. Yeah. People cannot get their money out of the banks. Uh, the, the politicians have stolen all the money. Uh, it's broke. But uh, many, many Lebanese have families outside who send in dollars. And the dollar's worth a lot now because the local currency has collapsed. Uh, many have started new businesses and import substitution because the country has no foreign reserves to buy. Um, you know, things just like laundry detergent, simple things, building materials. So they're now making it themselves, which is not a bad thing. Yeah. Uh, so a lot of a lot of new businesses have started up. Uh, many young people have gone to the Gulf uh, to work there and send money back. So it's, it is still going, but, but there's a lot of tension because of what, what's happening in Gaza, that things could go wrong between Hezbollah and uh, Israel, and that we might see a repetition of the 2006 Israeli invasion when Israel bombed all over Lebanon, took out every power plant, every bridge, hospitals, schools, I mean, really, really devastated the country. And it's, it still hasn't recovered from that. And if they have to go through it again, it's, they're going to, it's, 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 people be having nervous breakdowns. It'll just be too much. Yeah. And so there, everyone's hoping to, to avoid that. And I think that's one of the factors that, that Hassan Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has to take into consideration because a lot of those people who suffer are his fellow Shia. Uh, take into consideration before he ratchets it up too much in support of Hamas, which um, you know is not his problem. Really, technically, not his problem. Yeah, I was going to segue to some yeah, questions about about your book. Um, your most recent book is uh, "Soldiers Don't Go Mad: A Story of Brotherhood, Poetry, and Mental Illness During the First World War," which is, uh, you know, talks a lot about uh, post-traumatic stress disorder or shell shock. And so maybe my and it's about the you know, then within the British military. And could, maybe we could start off with a, just a question about like, how was PTSD or shell shock viewed by the, the British high commander in World War One? Shell shock, as it was called at that time, uh, became such a widespread phenomenon that they, they couldn't ignore it. 
they 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 lost a hundred thousand men to to shell shock. So they had to. It's like a like having a physical wound. You had to you had to heal it before you could send them back into battle. And they desperately needed men at the front. So they opened hospitals all over Britain just to treat these people. They also they also sent psychiatrists to France and Belgium to try and treat them at the front lines quickly to get again not because they're worried about their health but because they needed them to fight and. Um, programs that they set up were done in spite of the belief that some commanders had from an older generation that the men were just malingering and they were faking it in order to, to avoid battle, which would have been a perfectly rational thing to do. But anyway, that in 90% of the cases, this that was not happening. They, these people were really traumatized. Really, they, they had symptoms that were uncontrollable, paralysis, uh, mutism, going deaf, nightmares that kept them awake all night, uh, shaking, terrible, terrible trembling. Uh, they, they, were, there was, they couldn't control these symptoms and uh, the doctors had to get to the root of them and deal with the trauma that they had suffered in the front lines before they could get rid of the symptoms and then enable them to go back to fight. As I was reading through it, I, I, I remember, I think about that scene from the movie Patton, which is actually based on a true story where Patton is in the hospital and there's the young soldier who's been affected by shell shock and, and Patton slaps him and calls him a coward. Uh, and, and I'm wondering uh, how was within, you know, at least the, within the British military, was there, you know, a view that, you know, that the the faking it or the, that these men were just like cowards trying to get out of it and how much, how much of, how much of that was like a popular sort of thought. It's very, that, that story about Patton, which, which did happen, it's very interesting because I, when I was researching the book, I looked, I read a lot about it. Um, that soldier, whose name I now can't remember, was shell shocked, and he wasn't a coward. He wanted. He was telling the doctors he wanted to go back to his unit, and mm. because of the symptoms, they wouldn't let him. But Patton didn't know that. One of one of the reasons it was so so awful what he did was because the man himself was was not faking it. He was actually wanted to go back. He wanted to get cured to go back. And in, in, in the British Army in World War I, because it was a relatively new phenomenon, it was the first industrial war. Yeah. I mean, people had people had had nervous breakdowns in war, but not in these numbers. This was they were, remember, they were at the front in underground, days and nights of heavy artillery bombardment, poison gas, flamethrowers, uh, mines in the in the in the forward areas that they had to go into no man's land. And they faced every kind of horror and, and, and also aerial bombardment, completely new in. I mean, they were, and then seeing their their best friends or their own brothers cut down in, the, in front of them, or being themselves being blown into the air and buried. Many of the shell shock patients were actually dug out from under hundreds of feet of mud because they'd been blown into the air and buried alive. And they they'd been through hell, and so there were large numbers of these people that had had to be dealt with. And many of the high command did think that some, even those were faking, but most came around to the view that in fact. This, this was a real problem and they needed good psychiatrists. Remember, psychiatry was a new science at the time. They needed good psychiatrists to deal with. And some of the psychiatrists were useless and some were excellent. Uh, you wrote about the Siegfried Sassoon and, and Wilfred Owen, among others, poets, and you had this significant, um, right at the end of the war, you know, people are writing novels, quite on the Western Front, the uh, poets. How was that received? Because it, it's probably different. I don't know if there had been a, Kind of that kind of public outpouring of of kind of grief and, and anger at the end of a war like that. 
so people like Owen Sassoon were was that like kind of accepted and were they immediately kind of well regarded? Well, they were they were very well regarded as poets. Yes, and in terms of their politics, uh, Sassoon became a socialist at the end of the war and ran for parliament very briefly. Didn't then abandon politics entirely. Sassoon's psychiatrist um, William Hulse Rivers also became a socialist and ran for parliament on the peace ticket, uh, but he died before he could be before he was elected. Um, the books that were written, like Parade's End by Ford Maddox Ford, one of the great war novels, and All Quiet on the Restaurant, were pacifist novels. And that this whole that war was so horrible and was fought for no discernible reason, no advantage to any of those countries except some imperial conquests. Uh, that everyone turns back on the war. I mean, it, it, and this, the peace agreement was so bad that the Second, war, Second World War was inevitable. And many, But many of those people didn't want to fight the Second World War because they didn't believe in the First World So when you had some monster like Hitler coming along, a lot of people were already so anti-war that they wouldn't even, didn't even want to fight him. The, the, the effects of that war were long-reaching. We, we're still living with some. Middle East, we're still living with the consequences sure. of that war, all the borders that were drawn as a result of the peace settlements in 1914 are untenable. And, and that's that's why we still have these problems today in the Middle East. Yeah, I mean, I do U.S. history. So um, even at the end of World War One in the U.S., uh, there was this real revulsion against the war. And people like Owen and Sassou, no surprise me, I saw Americans referring to that. So, uh, you know, clearly a widespread um, uh, influence. Um, Scott, do you have any any? You know, I, I had one more question about the book. Was there any poem like that stood out stood out to you? Strange meeting, Owen's poem, where he he goes to hell and meets the man that he killed the day before, mm. and they lie together in in hell. Um, it's, I, I I haven't memorized it, but whenever I read it, I'm I'm almost in tears. Um, I mean, I, or soon called that poem. Owen's passport to immortality. Remember, Owen died yeah. shortly after he wrote that book. He was killed four days before the war ended. Yeah. Going forward, are you gonna are you gonna be going back to the Middle East? Do you have another book uh, you're working on? Right now, I'm, I'm just about to go to India for the Jaipur Literary Festival, and then uh, travel around India for a month, and then I'm not sure. I don't know what I'm gonna. Do. Yeah. Well, you know, there's always a, a steak and scotch in in Houston. So. Oh, great. <laughs> <laughs> That was uh, Charles Glass, well-known journalist, author, uh, who's you know really done a lot of great work in the Middle East over the years, and who has recently been uh, visiting Julian Assange and writing about that. So this is the kind of stuff you get on Green and Red podcast. Yep, and if you if you like what you heard today, and you uh, want to check out more, definitely follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you're watching this on YouTube, hit the subscribe button. Uh, and if you're listening to us on the any of the audio platforms, please give us a rate and review. It helps us with the algorithms. And then also, if you uh, want to support the Green and Red podcast, um, please check us out at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or become a or go to greenredpodcast.org and hit that support button. And then also we have gotten in a number of new pieces of swag which are hats that if you're watching this on video, you can see Bob wearing, but if you want a green and red podcast hat, uh, please email us at 
greenredpodcast at gmail.com or message us through any of the social media channels in which I just named. And for $25, uh, which will include shipping, we will get you a green and red hat. And they're pretty awesome. Look at them. It's a trucker hat. We're, you know, we're, we're like that. That's how we roll. Um, and for everybody else, uh, you know, go out and make trouble, misbehave, and we'll talk to you again real soon. Thank you.